Well, one day to go. I wonder how all your preparations are going. Are you the kind of person who has everything organised well in advance? Like my wife, Jill, she's been ticking off the lists as she goes. All the meals are organised. The fridge has been cleaned. Is that the kind of person you are? The car's packed, ready for holidays, and by today, everything is ready? Or are you more like me? You know, maybe you're planning on doing some last-minute shopping this afternoon. (laughs) You can wrap up the presents tonight after the kids go to bed, or even in the morning, there's plenty of time. Well, if you, know, if you know me, by the time everyone else has their presents wrapped up and under the tree with the cards on them, I'm still trying to remember who I'm meant to be buying for. <laughs> but what we're seeing this morning in this passage that was read, the rather strange passage, yes, that long list of names, we're seeing that preparations for the first Christmas, for the birth of Jesus, started very early. Like I said in the kids' talk, not weeks early, not months early, but thousands of years earlier. So according to the Bible, there were over 2,000 years of preparations for the birth of Jesus. So that when he arrived, there would be no confusion as to who he was and why he came. And so we're going to spend a few moments this morning thinking about some of those preparations, not all of them, from the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see a bit of an outline of the talk and where we're going in the bulletin that hopefully you received on the way in. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew or the biography about Jesus written by Matthew. Now, if you're writing a biography about someone, where do you begin it? You could begin with their birth. But people often go back a bit earlier. So my son Tim and I, we took a bit of a road trip in November down to see the oils, Midnight Oil, back together again. And on the car trip on the way to Sydney, we listened to Peter Garrett's biography. And he began by talking about his parents and growing up. A couple of years ago, I read Steve Jobs' biography and he went back to his parents and his adopted parents to begin his story. Matthew here in in Matthew's Gospel talking about Jesus, he doesn't go back to Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. He doesn't go back to Jesus' grandparents. He goes back 14 times 3 generations, that is 42 generations. Now that's a bit of overkill, isn't it? Did you notice that at the very end of today's reading? There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now look, if you're into making family trees, and I know some people here are, or if you've got a login for Ancestry.com and you, you you check it out every week, you might be excited about this kind of stuff. Good for you. The last time I preached a genealogy and I mocked people who liked this kind of stuff, I got in big trouble afterwards. I'm sorry, okay. (laughs) But for the rest of us, what is all this about? Thankfully, Matthew summarises the whole list in one verse, right back there in verse 1. Have a look at it there. If you've got a Bible, whip it open to Matthew. I think the reading is on the other side of the inside of your bulletin if you want a bit of a shortcut there. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, 
Here's the summary. Here's what you need to take home. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this half a chapter might be a list of all Jesus' ancestors all the way back to Abraham, but there's really two names that are important for the dummies, Abraham and David. And um, just to emphasise that, they're the two names that Matthew repeats at the end in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to Christ. So it's as if Matthew is getting out a highlighter and he wants to highlight two names in this list and the names are Abraham and David. Because Abraham and David help us see how important that Jesus is. So let's spend a couple of minutes on each one. Firstly, on Abraham. So Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. In, in other words, Abraham's closer to the start of the Bible than the end of the Bible. And God made a promise to Abraham, and this was the promise. I will bless the world through your offspring or through your seed, through one of your descendants. Now, what's that promise about? Well, if you were to open the Bible and start reading at the beginning, you would see that in Genesis 1 to 11, before Abraham comes along, the world is a mess. Okay, people have deserted God, even though he made them. They prefer to live without God. In fact, the world is under the judgment of God. The world is cursed. People's relationship with God is broken and people's relationship with each other is broken. In fact, um, you could read Genesis 1 to 11 and it seems to be explaining our world today. It is. Not a lot has changed. Sure, Abraham didn't have a car and Abraham wasn't on Facebook and Abraham didn't have an iPhone. But the world described in Genesis 1 to 11 is the world that we experience. It's a broken world. It's a world where most people try to live their life without God. It's a world that has pain and death and frustration. It's a world where we know it's not the way it's meant to be. We yearn for more. There's something in us that knows it should be better and yet we can't seem to fix it. We're now 4,000 years after Abraham, and still we haven't fixed the biggest problems of this world. And we're better at communicating, we've got better technology, we've got better medicine, we've got better counselling techniques, but we are still broken people in a broken world with broken relationship with God. So it's into that world, this world, that 4,000 years ago, God made some promises to a man called Abraham. And the promise was about this family tree that we've been reading about in Matthew 1.17. God says to Abraham, I will bless the world. I will get rid of the curse. I will fix the world through one of your descendants. I've printed out a bit of that promise there um, in your bulletins under Abraham. I'll read it for you to read later. But God promises to Abraham that, it, that Abraham will be famous, that he'll have lots of descendants, that he'll have a beautiful place to live. And the biggest one is that through Abraham and through his descendants, the world will be blessed. The curse will be undone. And it says that this will happen through one of Abraham's offspring, one of his descendants. 
So read on in the Bible, and we are now looking for those promises to come true. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. This is the genealogy. Abraham's family grows just like God's promises, and it grows more and more generations. And eventually they enter into a special land called the Promised Land, the land of Israel, and they start to be a blessing to the people around them, just like God promised. And so by the time we get to David, things are starting to look pretty good except that the world is still broken. People still have a broken relationship with God. That's the first third of the genealogy. It was 14 generations from Abraham to David. Now, why do we pause at David, Abraham to David? It's because in terms of fulfilling that promise to Abraham, David was the best chance there was. If anyone could have done it, David could. And it almost for a moment looked like he could be the one. But just when things were looking pretty good, God spoke again to David. And he said, no, David, this promise is not going to be fulfilled through you. It will be through one of your offspring." In other words, the person who's going to fix up the world, they are still coming. You can see that promise to David in your outline there. I'll leave you to read it this afternoon. And in the rest of 2 Samuel 7 there, God almost repeats word for word the promises he made to Abraham, this time though he makes them to David. And so as we read on in the rest of the Old Testament, as history unfolds, we are looking again for this person this descendant of Abraham, this descendant of David, who will fix things up, who will rule the world, who will be able to bring people back to God. So David has a son, and his son has a son, and his son has a son, but none of them are the one. In fact, the more you go on, the worse things get until we get to this thing called the exile. Okay, That's why Matthew says it was 14 generations from David to the exile, where things hit absolutely rock bottom and God kicked them out of the promised land that he'd led them into because they were so disobedient. And at that point in the exile, it's almost as if God's promises were put on hold. It's like God pressed the pause button and now we are just waiting and waiting and waiting for this person who will fulfill these promises. We're waiting for the descendant of Abraham who will fix the world, who will bring people back to God. And they're waiting and waiting until along comes Jesus. And Matthew says, he's the one. He's the descendant of Abraham who will bring blessing to God's people and through them to the world. And he'll do that by rescuing people from their sin, by bringing them back to God. He's the offspring, the descendant of David, who will rule forever. Now, we're going to think a little bit more about that tomorrow, how it is that Jesus does all of that. Because Matthew goes on to explain that in the next few verses. That's what the birth of Jesus is all about. But for this morning, I just want us to appreciate how big the coming of Jesus is.
All of history has been preparing for this moment. This is big. These preparations have been going on for over 2,000 years. And after all that waiting, Jesus is the one who came to undo the problem that was described in Genesis 1 to 11. Jesus came to bring us back to God. He's not just at the centre of Christmas, he is at the centre of all of God's plans for this world. History has a purpose. History has been leading somewhere. It has been leading to the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, which brings us back into relationship with God. I don't know how many of you um, know or read... Stuff by Philip Adams. He's an Australian atheist. He, writes in the, he used to write in the Sydney Morning Herald. He writes in the Australian. I was reading an interview with Philip Adams in the New Philosopher magazine, and amongst other things, they ask him this question. What's the meaning of life? And he says, like a good atheist, existence has no author, no purpose, no destiny. We have no author, no purpose, no destiny. Do people actually believe that? How do you live like that, that all of history is an accident, that we have no purpose in this world? It's a funny way to think if you stop and think about it. Everything has a purpose. This clicker has a purpose. This bulletin has a purpose. This lectern has a purpose. That chair that you're sitting on, it has a purpose. These lights, they have a purpose. Do you expect us to believe that the only thing in this room that doesn't have a purpose is human beings? We know that's not true. The Bible says we know that in our hearts, that we do have a purpose. But the Bible goes one step further and tells us what that purpose is. It's to be in a relationship with God and it's to be in relationship with each other and that got broken. And we can't fix it. But Jesus can. That's why he came. And that is the central event in God's purposes for this world. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Christ, who is at the centre stage in God's plans. So as you prepare for Christmas, um, at the least this morning is a great reminder of how important Jesus is. But as our culture squeezes Jesus out of Christmas, as our culture squeezes God out of their lives, we should expect that. But what a shame if Jesus was squeezed out of our lives. If Jesus really is the centrepiece of God's plans for this world, then he must be the centrepiece of our lives. The world might pay a kind of fake lip service to Jesus one day of the year, but we are here to serve him every day of our lives. In everything that we do, the way we talk to people, what we say, what we don't say, how we say it, 
how we spend our money, what we do with our holidays, how we conduct our relationships, how we eat our meals, how hard we work, how we engage with the relatives we don't get along with. If we understand who Jesus is, we will be deliberately thinking through everything in our lives to make sure that our lives revolve around Jesus too. Because according to God, Jesus is the reason for everything in the entire history of this world. It is all pointing to him. So we might put up the Christmas tree a month ahead. That's great. God was planning the first Christmas and telling people about it 2,000 years ahead of time. So there would be no doubt, no confusion about who Jesus is, how important he is, and why he came. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the great uh, message that we're reminded of at Christmas. That into this mess that is this world and into this mess that is our lives, you have sent Jesus to rescue us, to fix our relationship with you. And Father, we we pray that not just today and tomorrow, but we pray that our entire lives might be a remembrance and a revolving around Jesus. Amen.